Welcome to the A Plus EdTech Coaching Podcast, a podcast dedicated to talking about all things EdTech coaching. In this episode, I'm talking to Michelle Eaton. She's the director of virtual and blended learning for the Metropolitan School District of Wayne Township in Indianapolis, Indiana. She's also the author of the ISTE book, The Perfect Blend. She's come by to talk to me about how to help you coach your teachers to create blended learning environments. So what, what is your history? Describe your journey to becoming the director of virtual and blended learning. So I started my career as a second grade teacher and I was originally interested in academia. I always thought I'd work at a university. So as I was pursuing my master's degree, I was told, don't worry about specializing yet, wait for your doctorate for that, and just do something now that's going to make you a better teacher. And across my desk comes this online program through Indiana University on educational technology. And I thought, you know what? I'm kind of techie in that I use technology personally, but as far as me as a teacher in my classroom, I was pretty traditional second grade teacher. So I thought this will make me a better teacher. And if I am completely transparent, I signed up for an online master's program, assuming it was going to be easier that I'm working full time. I can do this. I can sail through this program. I am so grateful that I was completely wrong about that because what happened was not only did I learn about ed tech and get really passionate about that, I got really excited about the possibilities for online learning because prior to this experience, every online class that I had taken or every experience I had with online learning was subpar. And I think that's something a lot of us have had experience with. We can all think back to when online learning was less than. And this opened my eyes to what it could be, that I had built these really solid relationships with my classmates, with my instructors that I had engaged in highly collaborative learning experiences, all completely online without ever meeting them face-to-face. And so what happens is in my school district, I got to know our chief technology officer and started talking with him all the time about online learning and how excited I was about it. And I guess squeaky wheel gets the job because at some point we created Um, a virtual education specialist position where I got to work with our online high school and with teachers and coaching them in online and blended. And then since that time, that position expanded as the pathways for our students grew in the district. And so we were able to hire additional staff. And then I took on the role of director. So in this current role, I have the best job in the world. I get to oversee course design and professional learning for our staff at the virtual school, for staff in our blended programs across the district. And then I also get to work K-12 with teachers, taking what we know about high quality online learning and helping them integrate that even into the traditional classroom spaces. Pre-COVID, that's one job. Post-COVID, it's a completely different job. So that's been a lot of fun as we're expanding even even more the offerings that we have here in the district. But online learning kind of fell into my lap. 
I didn't expect to be taking this career path, but I'm so fortunate to have been introduced to online learning in this way because I am a fierce advocate for online learning, for blended learning and how we can do it not only just well, but as good as or better than the traditional classroom experience. I love how you explained that you thought that your online learning experience and your master's was going to be an easier approach. (laughs) And I did, I did two online programs myself. I did um, one of my, uh, a master's in online and online, and I did a, um, a doctorate online. And those were two vastly different. And one was back in like, and I'm dating myself, like 2000, nine 2010 mm-hmm. not even i'm wrong i'm absolutely wrong uh <laughs> 2005 2006 so <laughs> i don't i don't remember what year it is um but in that program it was still very very early there were very few colleges doing online learning and it was very much like here's some reading here's some discussion boards go write an extra paper go make a powerpoint presentation turn it in you're good let's go Um, And not saying that I didn't have some really good learning experiences through discussion boards and through readings and things like that, but it was completely different when I went back for my doctorate and we did the cohort model, like you, like you were kind of alluding to Mm -hmm. where I was with the same 12, 12 of us entered that cohort together. And I can tell you right now that if it wasn't for me being in with that same 12, I probably would have quit. Because it's, you get that um, uh, camaraderie that you get, Mm -hmm. like when you go to undergrad and things are hard and it's like the end of the semester and it's finals week and stuff. And you have, you know, I don't know about um, when you did this, but we always had like these little side chats um, on like, (laughs) you know, just... (laughs) Yeah. And we would be able to just complain like, oh my gosh, have you written that 30 page paper? I'm about 15 pages in. I guess I'm not sleeping tonight, you know, stuff like that. So it really has changed a lot. It was really powerful, I think, for me to see what it looks like for someone to nurture and foster a community of learners that were physically distant from each other. Because I think that's one of the biggest complaints we have about online learning often is the relationship building uh, piece. But if we're intentional about it, it can be a really powerful environment for that. The, I think the big difference between when we see online learning that has a, you know, a little bit of ways to go as far as uh, being effective and then when we experience these really powerful online learning um, experiences, the biggest difference is when we're creating online learning that's simply trying our best to replicate the face-to-face model. And so we create online learning that's just a little bit less than. And if we don't shift our mindset, use this new environment to do new things and to learn in a different way, then online learning is always just a little bit, a little bit less than the face-to-face experience. And that's always, that was the big eye-opening thing for me that learning looked very different online through this master's program and in a way that leveraged the environment and the tools in the best possible way. Right. And so let me just, and this might be a bit leading. I don't mean to be leading in this question, but would you call 
a lot of the online learning that teachers were thrust into the the traditional classroom teacher who's used to I walk in at 7:30 in the morning, I have kids in front of me all day whether they have devices or not, and then they'd go home and do their homework and come back, get thrust into this online only type of environment. What I think for me, I just get nervous because at at a central office level, you hear a lot of complaints. Like, what is this? Like, I don't understand. Like, this isn't working or this isn't. And I think for me, I feel like there's a lack of understanding that that was survival teaching. And you can, you know, completely disagree with me, but I feel like that was survival online teaching and that was not true, solid pedagogical practice online teaching. Right. I think we have to, first we have to celebrate what we were able to accomplish. Absolutely. Building the playing wall was in the air. Oh, yeah. Most all of us were, were teaching online with no prior experience in how to do this. And also let's do this through a pandemic. So let's just add. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. So we accomplished so much, but you're right. Even for fully online programs or a, an online school that existed pre-COVID, teaching during a pandemic is not ideal. We didn't have in our hybrid classrooms and our blended classrooms and our fully remote classrooms, we didn't have the components that we needed to make the perfect online or blended experience. It's just the, the nature of this experience that we've had over the last year. And so I think our role as um, staff developers, as capacity builders moving forward is to help communicate that, that no, this isn't something we want to continue to replicate post pandemic, but there are elements that we can take moving forward and that we can evolve and change when we have the ability to, to operate at full capacity that can have a, a transformational impact on instruction in the classroom, but it's going to look different. We've learned a lot. We can take what we've learned and make some really awesome change, but it should not and cannot look like what it did in the past year. Right. And so I want to go back to something else you were talking about. You said you've got a virtual school, mm -hmm. you've got traditional schools, and then you said something about blended programs. Can you explain what you mean by blended programs and, and what that looks like for you? Right, so blended learning in our school district looks different based on the students that we're serving. So a lot of the blended programs that are specifically set up within our school district are pretty disruptive in that they were created to meet the specific needs of students who maybe weren't being served completely in a traditional environment. So we have several different blended models for alternate populations. We have a night school. And in the night school, students can show up in the evenings. They choose what days they'd like to come in. They can work remotely. They can come into a lab in the evenings. We have four high school teachers that are there. The students are working at their own pace through online courses. And then they come into the lab to get individualized support from the teachers that are there. That's one example of blended learning in our school district. We have another alternate program where students follow more of a traditional bell schedule. They come to school every single day. They move from math class to English class to science class, 
But once they're in that class, they are working through online courses at their own pace, because while there might be 15 students in the math class, some of them are in geometry, some are in algebra, they're taking different courses at different times. That is one of the blended programs we have available in our district. We also use online learning to meet the credit recovery needs of some of our students. So they schedule into their day, time into the lab to recover credits and free up their schedule. So that's another way that we use online learning. So those are all of the disruptive models. But then you can go into a first grade teacher's classroom who's using components of online learning to help maximize their instructional time. So they're using a station rotation model and maybe students are engaging in online learning for very small portions of the day while they're moving from center to center. And that's also blended learning. So we think about blended learning as simply the combination of face-to-face -face instruction and online instruction. Any combination of those two things ends up being blended learning. So it creates a spectrum of, of what that could be. And it's a great example of how this model of learning can really be used to help us meet the very individual needs of our students and ensure that we are creating opportunities for success for all students and not just some students. So speaking of blended learning, you um, have written a book about blended learning called The Perfect Blend, A Practical Guide to Designing Student-Centered Learning Experiences. Um, and you said that came out last year? Correct, last summer. Last summer. So can you just talk a little bit about your book and, um, well, you've already spoken a little bit about your experience, but can you tell us a little bit about your book? Absolutely. So I wrote this book pre-pandemic. Um, like I said, I've been involved in online and blended learning well before it was cool. So I wrote this book. Obviously, I'm an advocate for blended learning, but I wanted to create a really practical guide for traditional classroom teachers to help them think about how they can leverage online learning in their classroom, not just to do this trendy thing called blended learning that we're talking about, but to help free them up to do the things in a classroom that are most critical for a teacher to do. And so this book doesn't really dive into some of those more disruptive models of blended learning. This is really a super practical guide. How can a third grade teacher, a 10th grade teacher, take elements of online learning and use them in their classroom, one, to maximize their instructional time, but two, to create opportunities for students to get some ownership of their learning, to take control of uh, their education and to personalize. And I think personalized learning is one of those things that we all can agree is great. Like no teacher is gonna tell you, I don't want my students to take ownership of their learning. But when we think about like practically, how do you scale that even to one classroom, it can feel really daunting. And so I wanted to create a book that was straightforward. What are some simple things you can do next week to create personalized learning that works for you as a teacher and empowers your students? So first part of the book is really focused on setting up that blended learning environment. What are the things you do in your physical classroom? The second half of the book focuses more on the online learning component and looks at how we design for digital experiences 
um, compared to how you would design them in more traditional settings because the reality is we learn very differently looking at a screen than we do face-to-face. -face. I think that's something that we're, we've all had some experience with over this past year. And so I really wanted to take a look at the research behind how we engage online and what we can learn from that to create digital learning experiences for students that are going to be effective and students are going to be able to take in that information. So, I mean, the big hope is that we don't go back to the 20th century or even the 19th century version of what learning looks like. And we're not sitting in those rows of students being lectured at and um, all of that. And uh, blended learning helps to move away from that. And so kind of transitioning to how might an ed tech coach um, who is talking with teachers now that they're coming back from COVID um, and they've learned all of these cool tech tools and they've used all these programs and things like that um, to do the survival uh, version of online learning. Mm -hmm. um, how might they get their staff or maybe even a single teacher to start into blended learning? That's a great question. I think to get someone excited about blended learning, I think you talk about what benefits how does this help you as a teacher? And when I think, I wrote about this in the book, but when I was teaching second grade and started dipping my toes into blended learning, like I said, I was a pretty traditional teacher, but I was a primary teacher. So stations, um, small group instruction were uh, critical for me as an instructor. That was how I developed readers and writers in my classroom. So prior to introducing blended learning, I would do my small group instruction and I would create these really cute centers. This was before teachers pay teachers, but I mean, on par with stuff you could find on Pinterest, right? Really cute file folder games and whatever. Uh, but I realized very quickly that in that environment, I, I felt really strongly about what was happening at my little small table in the back with that instruction. And that was really important. But what was happening at the stations around my room, I was measuring success there by compliance and not necessarily by learning. Were my kids quiet and looking like they were on task? If the principal came in, was she going to be impressed by the control I had over the room? And that was success. But often with those file folder games or those activities, I really didn't have any idea what students were doing. I had created opportunities for practice only. And for a lot of those, I couldn't really tell you how students were doing when they were practicing. And at some point, I decided this is not good enough for them. It's not good enough for me. And I had started to learn about these technology tools. So the first step I took was not transformational in any way. No one, I didn't, not winning awards for this big thing that I did, this highly personalized experience. I, I simply moved one activity to an online format. So. I would have my students read and then respond in their uh, notebook, the reader's notebook, and write some reflections. And what I found as we were doing that was that the quality of their writing went down as the year went on, even though I knew they were becoming better readers and better writers. And the reason for that was 
basically there was no point in doing that work. I, I have what I call in the book, a crate of good intentions. I had this little crate on wheels and every day I would put all these notebooks in the crate and I'd wheel it home and I'd really make it look like I was going to do anything with those notebooks at all. Right. But I had all of the responsibilities of a teacher and um, rarely got around to, to leaving really good feedback in there. And the students figured that out. Not only did they not have an audience of their peers, they didn't even have the audience of me most of the time. And so what I did, that first step I took, again, not a huge step, but I went into our learning management system and I had the students use the discussion board format to share their reading response. I did a couple of mini lessons on what it means to leave constructive feedback and how to participate in this environment. And almost immediately, I saw a couple of really huge benefits. One, the engagement increased because they now had an audience. Again, not a global audience. I wasn't doing anything major. Just the kids sitting next to them got to see what they were saying and they got to engage with each other. And then two, it was a lot easier for me to give feedback. I'm no longer willing to straight home. And um, I don't know, I don't know what uh, grade level you taught, but second grade, it, you would think it'd be simple to understand you go to the next available page, but we were writing all over the place. It's so hard to find the latest entry in a kid's notebook. Um, oh yeah, I, I was secondary English. So of course, okay. you know, I had the, when I taught middle school, we had the journals and that, and uh -huh. it's funny because that's similarly how I got into technology was I was like, there's gotta be something better because like you said, the creative right. good intentions, like you carry yeah. it home and you're like, I'm going to read through half of these at least tonight mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't happen. And then right. you're breaking your back. I actually flew research papers on an airplane with me and bought clothes when I got to my spring break vacation spot. And then when I graded the papers, which I did actually grade the papers in the hotel room, then mm -hmm. I mailed them back to myself so I could carry my clothes home. <laughs> so my goodness, that's terrible. Finding technology was amazing for me because right? you just carry a computer. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, so same thing. I take the computer home. I could sit on my couch mm -hmm. watching trash TV and then yep. also being a teacher, right? And and the thing that happened there was it was no longer just monitoring what students were doing. Having this centralized location for learning to happen made it really easy for, for me to be a teacher. And maybe that was happening at nine o'clock at night, but I could give feedback and I could give, ask questions and ask them to do something tomorrow when they went into their independent work time. And so, well, that was just very, very basic blended learning. Once I started to see success there, I was like, wait a minute, I can I can teach. I'm obviously I'm teaching right now without doing it live with students. I can teach students. We can have teaching and learning and assessment and not just practice happening during this time. And so that light bulb came on for me. It was essentially like cloning myself in the classroom. And, and that was the that was the benefit for me. I was able to reach my students in a, in a bigger way than I was before. So first starting with why you're why you're doing this. Um, simply just using technology because kids will like it. That works for a little bit, but everything, the, the new shiny tool thing wears off pretty quickly. So I'd start there. And then I think the next step is uh, pretty critical. I think really, I think that blended learning should be used to personalize. And so when I talk about personalized learning, if we think about it as the other side of the coin to differentiation, so if differentiation involves the changes that a teacher makes for a student to be successful, 
personalized learning involves the changes a student makes for themselves to be successful. I think both have a place in the modern classroom and, I, and blended learning can be a great tool for both of those things. But when I'm designing a blended experience, I think it's really important to put the focus on relationships, um, freeing yourself up to build those relationships and work closely uh, with students to create individualized instruction, but then also to empower students. And the trap we can fall into is the same trap that I'm sure you've talked about a million times talking about ed tech coaching is we have a tendency to talk about the tool first and then think, okay, this is a really fun tool. How can I use it in my classroom? It's the opposite direction we should be moving. When it comes to blended learning, we do the same thing, but with models. Like we'll sit there and we'll list here are the seven models of blended learning, and then we'll pick the one we're most interested in. Like I want to do the flex model or I want to do the station rotation. And then we try to implement it with efficacy. And in my book, I I think maybe the title, The Perfect Blend, is a little bit misleading because it sounds like a, a recipe that you would replicate, right? But really, the perfect blend is very personal and um, is not something you can just copy what someone else is doing. And so I think the questions we have to ask are not starting with what model do you want to implement, but what do you want students to have control over in your classroom? Because it's going to be different. It's going to be different for a calculus teacher than it is a first grade teacher. Uh, and, and even for an elementary teacher, it could be different from one point of the day to the next. But do I wanna give students control over pace or the path of their learning, the content, the order in which they're learning? Do I wanna give them some flexibility over where learning is happening or the time of day that it's happening? And you don't have to give control over all of those things. Uh, but it's, that's one of the first questions you ask. What do I want the student's role in this environment to be? What are the executive functioning skills I want to help foster and develop? And then what does my role look like now in that classroom? How does online learning help me accomplish that? And then you can put all of that together and say, oh, this is going to be, this is the model that I'm going to create or the, the hybrid of different models that I'm going to put together for, for this class. I think that's, that's so powerful, the idea of kind of designing what the need of the class is, what you're, um, what you're looking to achieve. Uh, you seem to be leading with a lot of questions. And I think that with, um, I think that that is the perfect type of thing for like an ed tech coach to come in and brainstorm those things because the teacher and you do it. You do a beautiful job in your book, and I, I, I think that in every teacher should pick this up and really, you know, look at it and um, have these thoughts and and um, work through some of this themselves. But I think that having an ed tech coach kind of walk through these things with them and make that make it a little bit less overwhelming, because I don't know about you, but I've worked with teachers before where they think they have to do all the things right now. They have to. I was one of those teachers. Yep. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> they have to have every station in place. Um, they have to know how to use every single tool. They have to, and they can't mess it up. But what I'm hearing you say is it's these small changes, these one thing at a time type changes that the the teacher can work on and that the coach can help guide them through. Well, like taking the first small step makes it easier to take the next small step. And I think that's the best way to do it. And to realize that this should evolve. 
with you and with your students. What blended learning looked like for my second graders at the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year was very different, especially as I scaffolded helping them become good self-regulators and develop those executive functioning skills. Our students don't necessarily walk into our classrooms fully capable of independent learning. We've seen that, the, the students that have struggled with engagement and motivation and the skills that are necessary to be a good online student. And part of our role in this environment is to help develop that. And as we develop that, and as we help encourage students to take on more autonomy, then that model changes as the year goes on. And so, yes, I think, I think I'm chasing a little bit of a rabbit there, but fine. absolutely. <laughs> Start like small. rabbits around here. It's, <laughs> there's so much learning that happens chasing a chasing a rabbit. Right. <laughs> so absolutely, it it should start small. But even if you get to a point where you're like, I am an expert blended teacher, it's still going to change and grow. And I hope I never get to the point where I feel like I've reached the mountaintop and and that's it. And there's nothing. There's nowhere else to go. So. I think that mentality is going to be important, not just for getting a teacher on board with blended learning, but in helping support them as they continue on that journey. So one of the biggest things about ed tech coaches and having one or, you know, where they're working with teachers um, on a very flexible schedule is the ability to do personalized learning for the teachers, for them Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of work with them on okay, teacher A really needs, really wants to work on this and grow in this area while teacher C wants to do this. Um, And I'm really interested in, you had talked a little bit about um, in a past conversation about you having a personalized professional learning system for some of your teachers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And let me frame it by telling you all of the ways I failed and what I've learned from it. So, because uh, I think that journey was just as important as the final product that we've created. So in my role, I work with our virtual school. And the cool thing about working with a virtual school that's been around for a while is that this is a great environment for innovation. We're already doing things that are a little bit different than what you would consider traditional. So. We had had lots of conversations and around personalized learning. And we had already dipped our toes into online PD because our teachers were not only all over our school district, but all over the state and all over the country. We even have a couple of teachers that are outside of the United States. So obviously we're not going down to the staff room to have a a meeting after school. So for several years, we've had to think about leveraging video conferencing tools for meetings and introducing online courses and modules for asynchronous professional learning. So all of that's been going on for a long time. But we started having a lot of conversations about personalized learning. And the same thing that I kind of, I alluded to earlier, this is not something that is really controversial among teachers. Yeah, we believe in personalized learning. And we'd have these really great conversations about what online learning should be. And nothing was really happening though. Like we were talking about personalized learning and, and I realized pretty quickly, um, wow, Michelle, you've been for a couple of years now standing in front of a group of teachers 
lecturing about the merits of Digimo Lecture and wondering why in the world nothing was transferring, right? Um, I wasn't doing a very good job. So I met with one of the, the staff at the night school, so one of those blended programs around personalized learning, and I said, I, I'd like for us to try to implement something. So that was the first step. Not, not quite, not personalizing PD, but I'm going to coach and we're going to work together. And they got really interested in something called individualized learning plans. So this idea that they could create an individualized plan for each of their students, and then that looked at the student's strengths and their interests and career goals and their needs and that they could use that to inform their instruction as they were meeting with each of those students. So started out with this. We got together, we designed this beautiful template in a Google Doc of an ILP to meet with students and they had all these meetings with students and these really rich conversations and then that's pretty much where the success stopped. They struggled with organizing that many documents. The students weren't using them later. The teachers couldn't balance using it. Nothing really changed in instruction outside of that first initial meeting. So we get back together at the end of the year to kind of discuss the work that we had done. And I was very nervous because it hadn't worked. And one of the teachers, I remember this conversation, this was years ago. Um, first thing he said was, okay, that didn't work the way that we did it. I really think if we can get this right, that we're gonna have a huge impact for kids. And he was like, so what can we do? And it was this mentality of, I'm gonna take this opportunity for failure and iterate on it and improve. That was exactly what we want for our kids. And it, it was a really great moment as and it is a professional developer for me in, in that moment. And so, what we did there as we were brainstorming what we could do next, we decided we should just try this with staff. Um, we should do it together so that we could have conversation as practitioners about what worked for us, what didn't, and then, and then come back to designing this for students. So my next mistake was <laughs> creating these individualized learning plans for the teachers um, that had a lot of choices in how they could engage with the learning. So we set the topics for the professional learning that was set in stone. So this was a great example of how personalizing instruction doesn't mean that students have full control over everything in your classroom. There are some things, depending on what you're teaching, that you as the teacher have to artfully decide. And so for me, it was what we were going to be learning based on our school improvement plan goals. And then I created all of these choices and teachers had the whole year to pick and choose what it is they wanted to do. And I spent the year keeping the plate spinning and trying to organize all of this. And we got together. So prior to doing the ILPs, all of the professional learning for this particular group of teachers was voluntary because these are not full-time teachers. This is adjunct. They're taking on an additional class on top of their full-time job. So the expectation of you have to attend staff meetings was not the same as it would be in a traditional building. And I was sitting at like 35% attendance at those meetings prior to the first iteration of the ILP. After a year of doing all of this work, personalizing the professional learning, 
we were at 35% attendance at the ILPs. Um, and so I had to get together. So our one huge staff meeting every summer where we physically get together. I have never been more vulnerable as a professional. I show up to the staff meeting where I have sold personalized learning for years about how much different and how much better this makes the learning experience. And I couldn't, I couldn't create that. For them and so i had to stand in front of them basically say this didn't work i want to know what you liked but more importantly i want to know what didn't work for you and even more important than that if you were part of the 65 percent that didn't show up your opinion is more important than ever because i want to know why you didn't and what would bring you to the table and what ideas you had and we collected all of this and then redesigned the program based on what it is that they wanted and that second year, we got up to 90% attendance in this voluntary setting. And the big learning for me there was what I, what I don't think is gonna be really powerful to share is a step-by-step -step recipe of how you can create this ILP program. It was, if personalized learning is voice and choice, I really focused on the choice part, created lots of choices, but ultimately it was still Michelle's PD plan that she was giving to you. Um, and the second year, it was our plan. I no longer had to fight for buy-in because buy-in isn't a thing you have to worry about if it is owned by the group. They created something that they wanted to participate in and then they participated in it. And it wasn't that difficult. So it was getting the, the voice part added in that was so important. And from that point on, I think the, the most powerful thing for me as a staff developer was to change my mindset about my own failure. Up until that point, I'm a proficient speaker. I can create really great slides. I can stand in front of a group of people and train them effectively on tools or instructional strategies. I had never really done much as a professional developer that I wasn't confident that I could be successful at until this. And so embracing that failure and embracing that vulnerability it takes to try something you're not sure is gonna work out and then have to admit it, went from being this really scary thing to now my favorite part of this job is that I love this sense of iteration. I like designing with the staff. I think it's exciting. It's exciting for me to tell you, I don't know what the next step is for the ILPs because we haven't designed it yet. And that unknown is, is pretty cool and probably one of the biggest pieces of learning I had as a coach in that environment and thinking about personalized learning. And so not only do we get the 90% attendance and, and maintain that as the years have gone on, we're now actually starting to see personalized learning happen in our classrooms because the teachers were able to experience what it looks like when it works for them and take those elements and use them with their students. And so it's been a it's been a journey. I've made a lot of mistakes, continue to make lots of mistakes, but I think it's been a pretty powerful uh, system. I love, I love that story because one of the things that, one of the pieces that I think is most important as an ed tech coach is having some sort of formal professional development, but it, it doesn't have to be, I'm going to come in once a month and do Tech Tuesday that just drives me nuts. I, <laughs> ed tech or coaches, happy hour, yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy hour. Yeah. Like you said, and I just, 
you know, and it needs to be driven by the needs and the voice of the teachers. And I love that you were willing to stand in front of your people and your teachers and say, okay, why, what, what feedback do you have for me? Give me, you know, the hard truth and everything. And I think that anybody who works in that space with adults, that's an intimidating thing to do is to stand in front of other adults, especially if you're seen as the leader or the, you know, the person who's supposed to know all the things um, about a specific topic to kind of look at other adults and go, what, what now? Like, how, how do I make this something that's going to work for you? So um, I'm hoping that all the ed tech coaches out there will kind of listen to that and internalize and I'm sure that your relationships with your teachers probably um, were even better after that. They absolutely were. And I think that's, it improves the relationships, but those relationships have to be there too for that to be yes. a comfortable yeah. space. I, mean, I, I don't think without a good, without a good community, I don't think you can ask teachers who aren't showing up to stuff, <laughs> are you showing up, right? Yeah. Um, so the the culture in the community is is so important, but I think again, not being the, the person standing in front of them with all of the answers and all of the information and, and just handing it to them as opposed to this partner in this process, I think that's a very different kind of relationship and one that I, I'm really proud of the, the staff and the community that we have. Yeah, it's hard. it's hard to look at teachers and to say, you know, you should be personalizing or individualizing or differentiating or anything like that. Um, and then turn around and give them professional development where you're just talking to them. Oh, I'm muted. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> hold on. My battery decided to, I thought I was plugged in <laughs> and I am not. So apparently battery saver mode means you're not allowed to talk. Um, (laughs) but I think that that's just, that's just the biggest piece, isn't it? To really show them, because I remember we were talking a little bit about blended learning when I was an ed tech coach and somebody just kind of said, well, this was just always good practice that you, and they, they were looking at it as a more, they were, they were not using the term blended learning the same way that we're using it now. They were using it for a completely different idea. Um, But it was the idea of really they were looking at differentiation. Like we really want you to differentiate or we really want you to individualize. And I just remember the teachers kind of looking around going, I'd love to. What does that look like? I don't know what that looks like. You're saying these words at me. Uh Uh-huh. But nobody has shown me. And for me as an ed tech coach, that was a light bulb in my head to kind of go, well, then we need to do professional development where you're feeling it as a student. Yep. We have to move beyond buzzword bingo too. Yes. Actually. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, if, you, if we want to use next generation teaching models in our classrooms, then those have to be modeled in our professional learning. Right. So um, as we get ready to, um, I, I've, I've, truly enjoyed talking to you and I'm happy to, um, talk to you anytime. Um, (laughs) but we're getting close to, um, close to the end of our time together. And I'm just, 
Are there any other pieces of advice that you would like to offer to an ed tech coach who may be taking on this idea of, I want to work with my teachers on blended learning? I think, well, similar to just any sort of coaching, the coaching that's embedded in the job and is not just this, you know, spray and pray, right? The, we're gonna, I'm gonna give you this information and then walk away that you are on the journey with them. I think that's critical and that's just good coaching. But insert whatever topic you're, you're working on. I think a lot of ed tech coaches in this last year, we've been forced to think creatively about how we do professional learning. For a lot of us, that means we're getting in Zooms or Google Meets and leading PD. I think for us, not only do teachers have this great opportunity to take what they've learned about online learning and then use it strategically in their classrooms moving forward, coaches have this same opportunity too. We have learned how to keep learning going in any environment and we can build on that and develop our skill sets in the online learning realm to provide really high quality professional learning as well. And so I would also encourage you, I'm a, a big proponent for asynchronous learning and how powerful that can be, even for adults. So I love creating online lessons and giving an extended period of time to get the work done, especially when it comes to voluntary professional learning, because I have to work harder than I do in an hour long Zoom meeting. But when designed really well, and, and what I mean by that is I'm designing online experiences that are asynchronous, that are very community-based and very transparent. I think one of the, the biggest things I learned about online learning as an online instructor was I needed to make the shift about assessment um, for my students and, and now for the adult learners I work with. But assessment had to move from something that was submitted to something that was published. And that was critical for engagement and work completion and motivation. And so as I was designing these experiences for the adult learners, the assessment piece, the accountability piece, that wasn't a quiz that they had to complete to get credit for attending. It was, what are we creating and sharing as part of this community? How can I foster authentic dialogue around, uh, around what we're learning in this community? And so as we were learning things in these asynchronous spaces, that was at the forefront of my mind is what are, what are we creating and how can I make this transparent so that it's shared among our staff? And once I figured that out, that piece, even if I had a ton to learn about instructional design and um, online learning in general, really thinking about this transparent interaction between the participants in the learning, I think was pretty transformative as far as the quality of learning that was happening, the participation that was happening. So I guess, again, circle back around to your actual question was to stretch ourselves, take what we've learned, think about how we can leverage online learning to meet the needs of more teachers, um, to be present more often, to be there along the journey, and then to really push ourselves to create better online learning. It doesn't have to be this very isolating experience. We can help develop a community of learners as well. Well, thank you for that. And I really appreciate you coming on and um, having this chat with me. And uh, 
I look forward to talking with you more, hopefully. This was fun. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in getting a copy of The Perfect Blend, just head over to edtechcoachingprimer.com and inside the show notes, you will be able to uh, get to the links so that you can purchase the book. I do want to thank Michelle again. And if anyone listening is an ed tech coach or an instructional coach or a math coach or an English coach, or even if you're a teacher and you just want to talk about coaching, hit me up on edtechcoachingprimer.com and go to the podcast section and fill out the form. I'd love to have you on.